Welcome to Fintech at Kellogg, a podcast that sheds light on the innovative people, ideas, and technology that are transforming the financial services landscape as we know it. I'm your host, Farron Meldrum-Taylor, and today we sit down with Claire Marsh, Triple M, Class of 2020, to discuss her work with Kiva, the famous crowdfunded micro-lending platform, and the ways in which fintech can help further financial inclusion. Thank you so much, Claire, for joining me here today. To get us started, do you mind telling us more about your background prior to Kellogg and the type of work you did at Kiva? Sure. Thanks for having me on, Farron. So prior to Kellogg, I was a product manager at Kiva for about three years. I was brought on to work on, I guess, their startup team within Kiva. Very small, wily team that was aimed at providing a direct connection to entrepreneurs that needed funding in Kenya in the U.S. and lenders from all around the world. So my main role was to serve as the translator between business teams, marketing, legal, and engineering to build out the experiences for our entrepreneurs, both in Kenya and the U.S. Awesome. That sounds really interesting. Can you tell us a little bit more about the impact that your initiatives with Kiva had on the local communities? Yeah, so our team specifically was a bit smaller in terms of impact than the rest of Kiva. We made up about 5% of the funding at Kiva. We were a very new team. Our focus was primarily on entrepreneurs and small businesses, rural farmers in Kenya and the U.S. who didn't have access to traditional financing due to not having a bank account, not having a credit score, perhaps going bankrupt in the past and wanting a second chance but not being trusted to do so by traditional financial institutions. So our model was based on what we called social underwriting which is a model that's based on the character of the entrepreneur or the borrower. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you did the social underwriting? So for us, we tracked some traditional metrics around what a a traditional bank would track around credit score, financial viability of their business. We would look at business plans, even help entrepreneurs build their business plans. For the most part, though, the core of our underwriting, especially in the U.S., depended on the network of the entrepreneur if they were willing to put skin in the game. And the way that this came to fruition is if they applied and let's say they had a very low credit score or no credit score at all, then what we would do is we would ask them to have friends and family lend to them at least $25. And they'd have a different number of friends and family to do that depending on how risky they were so that they were not necessarily using their financial capital, but social capital to get skin in the game. So with that, we were able to see their commitment to actually pushing their business forward and also prove out their credit worthiness. So it was a mix of the tech aspect and also working one-on-one with the entrepreneurs to get this loan going. Yeah, certainly. And, And by the end of my time there, we were getting smarter with the stuff that we were tracking. A lot of what we found was if a business didn't have any online presence, then they were highly likely to actually default on the loan. What we looked for were a lot of online social metrics, a lot of social media stuff. They're following on their website or on Twitter or on LinkedIn, that sort of stuff. Very interesting. You mentioned that you did loans to entrepreneurs both in the U.S. and Kenya. Can you talk a little bit more about the differences between the lending you would do here in the U.S. and over in Kenya? 
Very different. At the time when I started, these were two drastically different user bases and the product that we were trying to serve them with split in two. Kiva didn't necessarily have the resources to continue with both of them. So actually a year and a half in, we had to wind down one of them for focusing on just more the MVP product within the U.S. with the hopes that we would actually return to what we called the direct model in Kenya. In Kenya, it was very interesting. We couldn't necessarily go about the strategy of crowdfunding there quite yet due to the availability of broadband and internet connection. What we took as a strategy was more on partnerships with local technical service providers or organizations that were already working with these businesses, but just needed that extra plug of funding. Wasn't dissimilar to what we were doing in the U.S. We had a lot of these same partnerships, what we called them were trustees, someone or an organization that could vouch for your character. So these trustees in Kenya would refer a potential borrower to Kiva and would kind of handhold them throughout the entire process. And so an entrepreneur in Kenya didn't necessarily need to invite friends and family to join the platform, but they had to have specific checkpoints and engagement with their trustee. Whereas in the U.S., we were able to actually introduce the model of what we called the private fundraising period, which is that period I mentioned of inviting a certain number of friends and family to vouch for you with their money on Kiva before being opened up to the wider lender base. With these types of loans for the small businesses, was there any difference besides the friends and family between the lender base for them and the rest of Kiva's customers or clients? There was certainly some overlap, but it tended to be the case that more the traditional lenders of Kiva who lent to individuals internationally were not the same individuals that were lending to U.S.-based entrepreneurs. It tended to be lenders that were very embedded in their own community and wanted to look for those economic empowerment opportunities within their own community that would lend to small businesses in their own specific area versus those that would actually lend in Kenya tended to actually be outside of Kenya. We saw that changing a little bit as time went on. But when the program first started, it really was taking the same model of the traditional Kiva in in bringing lenders or high-performing donors into that lender base. It's nice to know that people are looking for the opportunity to invest in their community and that there was a vehicle for them to do that through Kiva, since I don't know how else you would necessarily know what local entrepreneurs might need help. Yeah, and it, it was actually pretty interesting because when I started, we were a fully separate platform from Kiva.org. It was called Kiva Zip. And so we had a very small lender base compared to the wider Kiva.org. No one really knew what Kiva Zip was. And so it would be more of the fanatics, the Kiva fanatics or small business associations that would get people involved in their campaigns. And so it kind of grew by word of mouth and not necessarily from the Kiva.org lender base, which was super interesting, I thought. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Switching gears a little bit, you mentioned your role at Kiva was more of a product manager role. Do you have any ideas or thoughts about opportunities for MBAs in organizations like Kiva? Certainly. I think Kiva is an interesting organization in the sense that it's a nonprofit and very resource constrained but also sits at that intersection of social good, tech, and finance. And so where we've seen MBAs be really effective in the past with our work is through, we have an internship program and even a fellowship program. Many people don't know this, but Kiva is made up of only about 100 full-time staff, 
and then we have around 500 volunteers. So we are mainly a volunteer organization and we have actually the vast majority of our impact is created by what we call fellows. And fellows are traditionally individuals that come from the finance space or want to get into the fintech space and or even microfinance and seeing how that work happens on the ground. And so they actually are placed all around the world in our partner-based countries. And they are tasked with actually doing due diligence on reporting back to Kiva, how things are happening on the ground with our partners that are distributing the funding. And so that's one way of getting involved. I think that happens about twice a year. They bring on a new class. And then the other way is through the internship program, which is also twice a year. It's typically six-month internships. And the vast majority of people that actually get a full-time position at Kiva are coming through internships or fellowships or similar experiences. So I think what organizations that are like Kiva try to look for is that track record of being in the field, especially if you're serving a certain population and understanding that population in the trials and tribulations of dealing with certain populations, but also that finance and business acumen, which I think Kellogg students or any MBA students are uniquely positioned for. So I have seen certain interns be really effective in coming in with specific skill sets around, let's say, A-B testing for the product side or financial modeling or even blockchain research that they've had in previous experiences and bringing that to the table for an organization that wants to do so much, but oftentimes doesn't have the resources to do it. Awesome. So you mentioned blockchain, and that is the hot topic for a lot of people. And I think especially nowadays, trying to figure out what the applications of blockchain are outside of cryptocurrency. Can you talk a little bit more about what Kiva was doing with blockchain or how you see blockchain fitting into this space? Yeah, I mean, I think in general, the opportunities for application of blockchain in the financial inclusion space are vast. With Kiva specifically, where we saw the organization as uniquely positioned was we had all of this extra information about entrepreneurs, borrowers that banks couldn't actually reach because they were too costly to serve. But we were willing to serve them because we were able to get cheap capital, right, to fund all of this risk. Now we have this information and what do we do with this? How do we empower those entrepreneurs with their own data to then be able to go to a bank and rise up on the credit ladder? And so what Kiva has been doing in recent months is actually working in congruence with other organizations in building out basically a digital ledger of credit identity for these individuals that don't necessarily have one. And I think that's where, at least from Kiva's end, they have the biggest opportunity in actually achieving that mission of financial inclusion. Because Kiva is really just, it's microloans, it's very small amounts, but it's that track record that helped those entrepreneurs actually rise up to the next level of credit. That's a great point, I think. You do see the lack of credit history being a huge obstacle for people all over the world, even in the U.S., and the idea is that hopefully everybody will graduate up and move on to bigger things so that they become a part of the traditional financial network. Yeah, I think that's the biggest challenge right now is, first of all, getting that information and then being able to digest that information and analyze it in a way that's meaningful. So you see 
banks going off of traditional credit scoring because that's the easiest information that they can go off of. And it's costly to get other pieces. But you also see other organizations and companies that are starting to leverage cell phone data and social data and all of that stuff to make it a richer set of information. But analyzing that stuff is where it becomes an issue. How do you interpret that data? And who owns that data? And I think that's where emerging technologies like blockchain, or even people that are diving into the data analytics side of things, that's where there's such an opportunity to actually make a difference in this field. That's a great point. We talk a lot about the opportunities that alternative credit scoring can bring to people who don't have either a traditional credit score or a good traditional credit score. But the privacy aspect of it, too, is something that gets a little bit muddied or lost in there as well, because you're talking about people's very personal data when you're talking about cell phone records and social media and things like that. You kind of mentioned some of the other entities or organizations that are doing work like this. Did you ever work with any other partners in other countries or do you have any other fintech companies or nonprofits that you see doing similar work that you think is interesting? Yeah, Kiva itself actually works with a lot of different partners doing this. From my standpoint, there are two companies that stand out to me that aren't necessarily directly tied to Kiva, but have some relationship there. One is Branch, and that was actually started by the founder of Kiva, Matt Flannery. And they are actually spinning out of the organization that I began with, which is Kiva Zip. They took that idea and took it to the next level. So what they did was created actually a social enterprise and dove a bit deeper into the cell phone data piece to actually provide the credit scoring. And so they're focused primarily in East Africa, but they're using cell phone data to then provide a a credit score so that they can actually make loans. A similar company to that is Tala, formerly InVenture. They started in India. I believe they're also working in East Africa and perhaps other areas now, but they're another company that comes to mind that are leveraging this idea of richer data that you can get outside of just the traditional financial scoring and putting that to use while also keeping the consumer in mind. And I think what you mentioned around privacy issues, it's so real. You listen to stories of entrepreneurs who don't even trust banks anymore because they've been burned in the past and they want control of their own money that they earn. They work really hard to earn and some of them even keep money underneath their mattress, right? They, I think because of the financial crisis, which rocked really the entire world, a lot of people have a really negative connotation associated with banks. And I think that's a challenge, but also an opportunity for emerging technologies and emerging fintech companies to really try to solve. Yeah, I think especially what you were doing with Kiva Zip, I think a lot of people think of microfinance and think about individuals, and then you've got bigger organizations which are eligible for traditional financing, but that gap of small business people and entrepreneurs is still huge and can make a huge difference in those communities, but they're considered maybe a little bit too big for microfinance or need a little bit more funding, but they're not definitely not big enough to get a traditional bank loan, or even if they could, they might not be able to afford it, things like that. Right. And even even at the slightly larger level, what we call the, the social enterprise level, we started actually a team at Kiva uh, spun out an arm that was called Direct to Social Enterprise. And what they do is they actually, they take that next gap and they're trying to fund those social enterprises that can't get money from traditional institutions. And that's actually a unique experience and way to get involved as an MBA who's 
potentially interested in impact investing or even entrepreneurial vetting is they have a platform that anyone who is an MBA student can join and actually vet entrepreneurs and vet business models. I can send that out to the group, but I think it's a really unique opportunity to actually then build up that experience if you're looking to get in that space as well. That's a great recommendation. I think a lot of people would be really interested in doing that. So please share that information yes, with us. I will. <laughs> So are they acting almost like a VC? Is this equity funding or are they lending to these enterprises? So they are acting in terms of the MBAs or in terms of the direct-to-social enterprise program. The direct-to-social enterprise program. So it's leveraging the Kiva model. So getting, once it's vetted by both the team itself, the internal team, and then also the MBAs that are looking at these business models, then they actually are put on the same track as, let's say, a U.S. entrepreneur. And so they have to get a certain number of people to fund them sometimes, or if they're a little less risky, they're just opened up to the broader Kiva community. Oftentimes they're funding a lot larger amounts. So we're talking like anywhere from 25K to 100K. And so it takes a lot longer for them and a lot more people for them to get on board. So we need to make sure that they're super serious about this. Oftentimes that means they need to have a network to reach out to initially and where we see it being super critical is within that first 15 days of the fundraising period, which tends to be 30 to 45 days. That actually seems fairly fast to raise that much money. It's but very that's great fast. That it it's very fast. And with Kiva, it's all or nothing. So it makes it large stakes to reach out to your network. Do you guys follow the companies at all to see, I mean, obviously you're looking for repayment, but... Do you ever get to see you know, what they've accomplished with this funding that they've received? Absolutely. We have an entire team dedicated to that and to impact measurement. One of the coolest things to see is when we have what we call repeat borrowers. So borrowers who start with us, maybe they get a $1,000 loan, right? And then they've graduated all the way up to a $25,000 loan. And they're really working their way up the credit ladder. And they've had this relationship with Kiva for a really long time. And we've seen the impact of where they've been able to start from basically nothing. So let's say they are an aspiring restaurant owner. They start with a food truck. They get some traction there. They were able to get a, a food truck with some of the, the loan money that Kiva lenders help them fund. And they go from there to actually establishing a brick and mortar. And that's like a really exciting time period for Kiva when we see that happen. Because the way that we differentiate ourselves is not just the numbers of individuals, which it seems like these days banks have mainly focused on and the relationships have kind of taken a second tier of importance. We focus primarily on the relationships. And so, yes, that means that we don't grow as quickly as perhaps the user base of banks but that means that we know so much more about the individual and therefore can offer them money that perhaps a bank can't. Yeah, that's definitely an important gap that Kiva is able to fill. So other than blockchain, are there any other technologies that you think will be key to improving financial inclusion? Absolutely. I think you see companies like PayPal and Square and M-Pesa, companies that are aimed at that last mile delivery of funds and business solutions that go beyond just the back end's infrastructure that really make it easy for a small business or an entrepreneur to deal with their financing. Very interesting. I was doing a project actually this summer out in Uganda working with some older coffee farmers 
And it was interesting how many of them were using mobile money, even with just a feature phone. Mm-hmm. Um, and talking to them about how helpful that would or sometimes would not be because of the fees. But in a lot of cases, it did make things easier for them. Yeah, I mean, you see nowadays, it's it's interesting because I think there's a lot of hype in the U.S. around how millennials are no longer using banks or credit cards and we need to figure out a way to get them re-engaged. But for the vast majority of the developing world, they haven't ever really had a strong bank system, right? And so many of them don't have bank accounts. And so you see these companies basically just completely leapfrogging that step that we're all talking about is no longer needed. And they're already beyond that. You know, they're, they're three steps ahead of us. And so I think that's that's where it's super exciting and where I've been super interested in and why I even got started in the microfinance space because I saw so much opportunity in a lot of these countries that, yeah, they didn't have the infrastructure that the U.S. has, but they have so much more opportunity to surpass that more quickly. Yeah, it does seem like they've created a system in some ways that's even better than Mm -hmm. what we have with traditional financial institutions. You saw at every block corner there would be a stand where you could cash out or add money to your mobile account. Yeah. Other than mobile money, are there any other trends in fintech that you're excited about or you see as most promising for improving financial inclusion? I think I'm going to have to go back to that idea of owning your data and owning your identity. I think that is where we're going and the companies that are capitalizing on that and being able to allow people to interface with their own data, that's where the future of financial inclusion is. I would agree that that is definitely very important. There's, uh, I forget what country was trying to use blockchain, I think, to create national identity numbers or cards or something like that. Yes. Um, I remember seeing something. I really remember now. We take for granted, I think, how many records we have. We have birth certificates. We have social security numbers. Obviously, we have student IDs now and credit cards. And there's countries where people don't even have that basic national identity document. Right. You know, how can you get a loan or open a bank account without that? And we Mm -hmm. take that for granted that we just have that. Yeah. And so it was really interesting to me to think about just like what a simple step that would be if people were able to have some kind of record that proved who they were. Yeah, that that's such a great point. Proof of identity. I mean, that was even an issue when we were doing loans in Kenya and trying to use M-Pesa for that, because in order to verify your M-Pesa account, you had to have an ID. And many people don't have IDs. And so how do you bridge that divide? Yeah, that's not something we've necessarily figured out how to solve everywhere yet. So to wrap things up, do you have any other advice you'd give to people looking to get into more of a socially minded fintech company? I guess I would just say that oftentimes I feel like it's very natural for us as students to flock to the technology or the company, get really hyped on that. I would encourage all of us to really consider starting with the end consumer and understanding their needs first and foremost, talking to them, really looking for opportunities to be face-to-face with them because that's where you become most powerful in a position to actually create change. By understanding that user and understanding their unique needs, you can actually be able to figure out how that company is best positioning its its products or its value that is providing to to the customer. 
think that is an excellent point and an excellent way to end our podcast today. So thank you so much, Claire, for joining us. Thank you. And see you next time. We hope you enjoyed this interview with Claire. If you want to learn more about FinTech at Kellogg, you can reach us directly at fintechclub at kellogg.northwestern.edu or come check us out on our Facebook page. And if you liked what you heard today, please remember to rate us on iTunes and click that subscribe button to hear future episodes. That's it for now. Thank you for listening. Until next time.